Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Randolph Nessie. Randy is a leader in the field of evolutionary psychiatry, that is, the application of evolutionary thinking to understanding how it is that we can be as vulnerable as we are to mental health problems uh, and thereby to improve their treatment. In addition to being a clinician who has treated many hundreds of patients through his career, he's also the author of hundreds of published papers, book chapters, and talks on psychiatry and evolution, which have clocked up a ridiculous number of citations. What are emotions for? So I'm going to back us up just one stage, Rob. Instead of talking about anxiety overall, mm. we should talk a little bit about emotions. I asked myself, so gosh, anxiety is one emotion. There's a bunch of emotions. Why do they exist at all? And I went reading in my psychiatry textbook, and the entire chapter on emotions was one and a half pages. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you're, if you study heart disease and you look up in a medical textbook about heart disease, you know, there's, there's 100 pages about how the heart works and how the different parts are, are for. So then I went looking at emotions research, and I spent a full year just reading about emotions, and I pretty much gave up at the end of that. And I thought, you know, everybody's arguing about how many emotions there are and what each emotion is for, and there's no agreement. And I, I really was very frustrated. And then I went back and found what William James had to say about it. You know, William James, a great psychologist, he essentially said, I'd as rather read the literature on emotions again as catalog rocks on a New Hampshire farm. There's no order, there's no categories, there's no way of making sense of it. And I thought, well, if he can be frustrated, I can be frustrated too. <laughs> um, so, so I looked at evolutionary approaches, and most of them were saying, what's the function of anger? What's the function of anxiety? What's the function of depression? And I asked myself, well, how do these emotions come to be? And the answer is that they're, they're suites of coordinated responses that change lots of things physiologically and cognitively and behaviorally to cope with a particular kind of situation that's recurred over evolutionary time. So people who felt the hot breath of a tiger on their shoulder and the, a lion is salivating in front of them, who experienced the emotion of awe, those genes didn't stick around at all. <laughs> uh, they became lion lunch. While people who had this coordinated response that we call a panic attack or a fight-flight reaction, where they start sweating and they run really fast and they breathe really fast and their heart pounds and their muscles get tight, those people were more likely to survive. And so natural selection shaped a very specialized emergency response we call a panic attack. And all of a sudden, with that insight, which I'd never quite had before, I realized, gosh, every emotion needs to be understood not in terms of its function, which was the prevailing evolutionary view, and the still continuing evolutionary view by many people, but instead, in what situation is this emotion useful, or, or was it useful for our ancestors? And this also solved one of the biggest conundrums about emotion research. I mean, are the emotions separate little entities, or are they all overlapping on dimensions? No, you think about this from an evolutionary viewpoint, and they're like overlapping boughs on a tree, with, because you know, they all evolved from each other. So this, this made sense of emotions. So the question is, in what situation is anxiety useful? And the answer to that is fairly, you know, in situations where you're in danger of losing something, it's good to have a special mode of operation that alerts you to the possible loss where you can take preventive action and avoid that situation in the future. So, and the next thing that happens is, hey, is there only one kind of loss? No, you can lose your finger, uh, you can lose your friend, you can lose your mate's fidelity, you can lose your money, you can lose your health, you can fall off a building. And this helps to explain why there's so many different kinds of anxiety. Natural selection is gradually and only partially differentiated kinds of anxiety to cope with those different kinds of possible losses. 
What's the point of sadness and depression? So this takes us back to this distinction between sadness and depression. I'm so glad you're going this direction. You know, anxiety is protecting us against losses as possible and keeping us from going back in situations that cause losses. If you have a loss, that causes sadness. Um, And sadness doesn't seem like it's useful because, hey, the loss has already happened. What are you going to do about it? But in fact, there's a lot you can do about something if you've lost something. If your child has just been washed out into the surf, You can swim out after your child. You can tell other kids to get off the beach. You can prevent any of your children from ever going in the ocean again. Uh, You can get sympathy and help from other relatives. I mean, there are all these things you can do to prevent further losses immediately and further losses in the future. And if you lose your driver's license, you can get a different kind of wallet uh, so you're not as likely to lose it in the future. Uh, Worse, I mean, if you say the wrong thing to your spouse and she won't talk to you for a week, you can learn to stop saying things like that. You know, it's very good to feel sad and upset about making mistakes uh, that cause losses. Uh, Where this really becomes awful, though, is losses of a loved one. And I spent three years of my life delving into a very detailed database where we looked at people who had experienced loss of a spouse. And they were asked uh, six months, 18 months, and 48 months later about all of the details. And we had a lot of information about them before they ever had the loss. And one of the questions was, gosh, do, is it true what we were all taught in psychiatry that people who have ambivalent relationships need to get in touch with that ambivalence to get over their long-term grief? And one of the profound findings from our research was that people who have ambivalent relationships before the loss don't have as much grief as other people. It's exactly the opposite (laughs) of what we were all taught. Whoa. Uh, Plus, the theory in psychiatry was always that delayed, absent grief, people who don't grieve, um, really have a problem. And you need to get them in touch with their grief, more specifically based on Freudian theory. I spent many hours, upon the direction of my well-meaning supervisors, trying to help people who are having bad long-term grief get in touch with their anger towards the bereaved, because Freud's idea was that suppressed anger was causing depression. And I mean, everybody has anger towards everybody at some time, you know, so you you can always find something uh, like that. But in our data, we found no hint that people who didn't grieve immediately had more grief later. It was quite the opposite. What we really did discover that was profound in our study is that a lot of people who experienced a lot of grief at six months didn't remember anything about it at 48 months. They said, no, no, grief never bothered me much. Uh, Conversely, a lot of people who didn't experience any grief initially later remembered themselves as having experienced it. It just, for me, it, it taught me once again that we humans are subjective beings and the idea that we can remember things accurately about our emotional lives not not really. That's just, just not how, how we're designed. But now you're going to ask me, so why the hell is there grief which causes so much awfulness? Um, this is an unsolved problem, Rob. Uh, so some people say it's an it's an accident of our, our system for attachment. And other people say, actually, it's good to grieve the loss of a loved one to you know, help help find them. If, in fact, they're not dead, they're just lost in the savannah someplace. And to prevent other losses, th- this is a very profound question at the center of bereavement research. The distinction between something being good for a person versus being good for someone's genes. 
Yeah, I find this a shocking thing, Robin, and a disturbing idea. I mean, I always thought that natural selection would shape us for health and happiness and cooperation and, and long, happy lives. And anything different from that meant there's something wrong with the system. But once you start studying how evolution shapes behavior regulation mechanisms, you realize that it doesn't give a damn about us. Um, you know, that doesn't give a damn about anything. It's a mindless process that any genes that make individuals do things that benefit transmitting more genes, which basically means having more children and taking good care of them and getting resources to do that, any genes that make that happen will become more frequent. Um, any tendencies genetically to do things that make your life end sooner or have fewer offspring or have fewer resources, those are going to go away. And the whole system doesn't care at all. Um, I mean, a lot of our bad feelings are about things that have to do with reproduction. And we, we should pause just a moment and note that Freud was right about one thing for sure. He said, ultimately, it all comes down to sex. <laughs> and, you know, it's not sex, it's reproduction. And when sex is just one small part of having offspring and taking good care of them and raising them to a point where they can reproduce. But, you know, fundamentally, all of these systems are designed to maximize numbers of offspring and the benefits to relatives. And a lot of times that makes us miserable. I mean, bad things happen to our kids. Hey, that's not us. But we're wired appropriately so to feel really, really bad uh, if you know, our kids are not doing well and we try to help them. So the, these are things that are built in. You don't want to change them because that would be awful uh, to lose the, that kind of feeling. For sex, it's more of a different matter. When people can't have sex, they really, really hate it. And you know, that's pre-wired, I think. You'd be nice to just tell yourself, oh, I shouldn't care about that because that's about my genes and not me. But actually, <laughs> that doesn't help a bit. Striving for status, however, I mean, a lot of your work with 80,000 Hours, I think, has to do with people pursuing careers. And it's always a challenge to figure out how grand a goal to set and what to do when you're not making progress towards a relatively grand goal. Um, and this is, this is another area that I'd like to talk about at some point. How is it that severe depression can be really common? So, so this is, I think, the most important unanswered question in mood research. Uh, we need to try to understand severe depression in terms of how ordinary low mood is dysregulated. Uh, there is something called kindling at the foundation of a lot of depression research. Kindling means, it, it comes from epilepsy research, really. If you induce seizures in an animal by putting electrical probes in the brain, it makes it more easy for them to have seizures in the future with lower stimulus of a drug or, or electrodes. Uh, and there's a, an analogy here with depression. People who have episodes of depression go into depression more likely the next time with fewer losses and, and lower stimuli. And that's usually been interpreted as something in the depression harming the brain. And in fact, there are some brain changes that are associated with depression. But another evolutionary interpretation is that there's a system that adjusts how easily depression goes off depending on what experiences you've had. And if you've had repeated experiences of failure, then going into the mode that's appropriate for failure more easily becomes easier. And now we're back into the same argument as we had for panic disorder. That is, it's a positive feedback process where the more depressed you are, the more you get depressed. And guess what? In modern life, this is such a huge problem for people because you can go to your room and you can shut the door and turn off your cell phone and then lie in your bed crying saying, how come nobody ever calls me? 
because your cell phone's turned off. Or you know, instead of calling somebody and going out and doing something, you could stay there eating junk food um, and you know, watching television. And that's just like a recipe for becoming more and more and more depressed. And on top of that, you can not get any exercise, which is another recipe for, for being more depressed. This is not an adequate explanation I want to emphasize, Rob. I mean, the, the real explanation for why low mood escalates into depression uh, needs a lot more work. But there's a lot of work that's been done that nobody pays attention to. A fellow named Eric Klinger, a psychologist in Minnesota, has been writing back in the 1970s about the normal sequence of events when you're not making progress towards a goal. And it's quite profound work. Um, he points out that the first thing you do is, is wait for a while. And the next thing you do is, you know, try a different strategy. And the next thing you do is give up completely for a while. Next thing you do is try another strategy. And the next thing you do is completely change your goal and, and recognize that you're never going to reach that goal. Um, there's also other good research on this, Yoda uh, Heckhausen. And again, I'm going to really simplify subtle you know, social science research. And Carson Roche is another researcher who's worked on this, uh, showing that you know, people who keep pursuing unreachable goals spiral into worse and worse depression. Um, she was studying people, women, who were approaching menopause who wanted to have a child. That's a bad situation because you're, you're doing more kinds of IVF and other kinds of things to try to have a child that's not working. And you know, this, is, this, this is spending a lot of effort and time and worry trying to make something happen that it might not work. And, and then when, when many of these women reach menopause and give up on that, their depression goes away. And this whole line of research has made me change how I see patients. And it used to be that I would always encourage patients, keep trying, never give up. Um, your difficulty trying to do this is because of your depression. Don't let the depression get the better of you. And as I got older and I saw that not everybody can succeed in everything they're doing in life, I started just listening more and, and being more sympathetic and saying, gosh, can we talk more about why you feel you really have to apply to medical school for a fifth time? Or, or to somebody else, can we talk more about why this is the only woman for you in the world and you feel like you shouldn't go on living unless this person will love you? I mean, so often people are pursuing something that's very, very important and you sympathize with them. And, and I think the key to good therapy in these situations is not just to tell them, you know, don't pay attention to your depression. And it's not to just tell them, oh, you're never going to succeed at that, give up. The thing is to talk with them about, gosh, do you think that's working? Um, do you, how much effort do you want to keep putting into this? Are there other things that would be better for you and your family than continuing to put in this effort towards getting that particular promotion or making that particular person respect you? On the other hand, it's not simple, job because we all spend our lives you know, pursuing unreachable goals. And the people who succeed grandly very often are the people who do pursue giant goals and fail over and over again and keep trying. So nothing simple here. Is mental health actually getting worse? I very frequently hear the claim that in countries like the US and the UK, mental health is getting worse and, and more people have depression and anxiety than, than have ever had it before. But I guess, I guess the, the data behind that has always seemed a little bit hazy to me because it's something that's quite hard to figure out. Do, do you have a take on whether that is true or not? Yeah, a lot of my work has been with epidemiologists and I always ask them about that. It's a great example of how 
information transmission is distorted because everybody wants to hear something new and dramatic and horrible. The evidence is very poor for that. Uh, people went back in one study in Canada to visit the same people uh, 30 years later and asked the exact same people the exact same questions. No real evidence of increased anxiety or depression. Uh, furthermore, Ron Kessler, who's probably the world's leading epidemiologist for psychiatry, did a study during COVID. I mean, everybody was about the, the COVID epidemic of mental health disorders, and he did an actual proper study, randomly selected people asking all the right questions, and his conclusion was, gosh, there's not really much evidence uh, for increased rates of severe disorders, maybe a little bit of, of mild things. Now, that's not to say this doesn't deserve further study. There's also a study in the UK of young people who use social media a lot, um, and it looks like maybe they do have increased rates of problems. So we need to keep an eye on this kind of thing. It also looks like during the cocaine epidemic uh, in the 80s and early 90s, there may have been increases because so many people were wrecking their lives with cocaine and methamphetamine. Mm. But, but the whole idea, I mean, people used to think, oh, well, back in the good old days, uh, these things weren't problems. There's, there's so much more attention to them because of television advertisements for antidepressants um, and outreach programs to identify people with depression, many of them sponsored by drug companies. They can be helpful, but they also get people thinking and, and more comfortable revealing their symptoms in a way that makes you know, the news media seem to find lots more depression and anxiety when it's very hard to actually do the studies and, and show that that's actually increasing that much. Which isn't to say it isn't a gigantic problem. Right, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the overall rates of anxiety, I mean, anxiety and depression just by themselves cause medical morbidity, that is inability to go to work and early death and things like that, equal to almost all other disorders, not just mental disorders, but other disorders. I mean, these are gigantic world problems. And again, this takes us back to the core problem. I mean, who the hell designed this thing? I mean, how come we're all so vulnerable to so much useless suffering? The origins of morality and the problem of simplistic, selfish gene thinking. So the reason I wrote those articles about psychoanalysis was because of talking with one of the wonderful biologists at the University of Michigan, Dick Alexander, and one of the wonderful biologists of our time, uh, Robert Trivers. And they had both written articles suggesting that the reason we have an unconscious is so that we can pursue our own selfish motives without knowing it and better deceive other people and accomplish our goals. So you can tell somebody you love them passionately with a full heart and then just have sex with them and leave the next day. That, I mean, that, that was kind of the simplistic version of, of the argument. And I thought, well, that sounds awfully cynical. Not only that, it, it doesn't match what I'm, on, what I'm seeing in my practice. I'm seeing people who lie awake nights wondering if they accidentally didn't smile at somebody, you know, or if they accidentally took a person's parking spot that they didn't, you know, people are very sensitive. How is it possible that we have these feelings of moral obligation and shame and guilt even towards people we're not related to. I mean, the great discovery by Bill Hamilton and Bill and, and George Williams of, of if you do things for your kin who share your genes, you can sacrifice a lot for them because they have the same genes. That's called kin selection. But I've become fascinated by the origins of morality and very distressed by the possibility that selfish gene thinking can make people cynical. And I've seen it make people cynical. They say, well, natural selection can only preserve genes that make us have more offspring, and therefore everything we do is basically selfish. 
Well, everything we do is basically in the interest of our genes in the long run on the average, but that doesn't mean that we're all being selfish. And in fact, selfish people don't do very well at all. The people who do best, we can tell from an evolutionary viewpoint, on average are those who have a moral sense and those who are loyal to their friends. We know this because most people are like that. And people who aren't like that don't do very well, except in large, great places where they can you know, get away with stuff and move on to a different town another time. So this led me to literally decades of trying to understand this. I, I first did what's called commitment theory and did a whole book on evolution and commitment. But then gradually I followed the work of Mary Jane West Eberhardt, an insect biologist, who talks about what she calls social selection. And her point is so simple and so profound. She says that just as individuals pick out the best potential sexual partner, creating extreme traits like a peacock's tail, and that's why the pe peacock's tail really drags the peacock down, right? But mm. it's beneficial to the peacock's genes, even though not to the peacock. And she says, just as that happens for sexual selection, we also pick our social partners. And we're trying to find some social partner who has things to offer, like, you know, resources and integrity and caring about us and, and the like. And I took that idea and ran with it and wrote, wrote several articles about partner choice as the way that natural selection shapes our capacities for morality and genuine relationships that are not just exchanging favors. Because that's real good relationships are not just exchanging favors. Or you care about somebody, and you don't want a relationship with somebody who says, oh, you invited me over to dinner, so I'm going to invite you over to dinner. No, that's not how it works. Uh, you're, you, the way it works for most people is, gosh, I really like you. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's have some time together. Isn't it wonderful that we're not like chimpanzees. We, we really have capacities for genuine morality and love and friendship. It's astounding. And nothing about selfish gene theory makes that untrue. We need an explanation. I think the, the explanation is that we are constantly trying to be the kind of person other people want to be a partner with. And there's big competition for that. And there's a lot of good psychological work about competitive altruism, where people compete to be more altruistic than others. And I think there's a good reason for that. So, so this explain this. I'm, I'm going to wrap this up by going back to social anxiety and guilt, because why do people have so much social anxiety? Because being very sensitive is a generally a good thing for your genes, if not necessarily for you. And why do people have so much guilt and and worry so much that they might have accidentally offended somebody? Because having that moral sense really is very important. People who don't have that moral sense don't have very many friends, or at least their friends are just friends who want to get something and trade favors instead of friends who will actually care for them when they really need help. End of little lecture, but, but, but I, I find, I think a big reason why evolutionary psychology hasn't caught on more is because a lot of people have a simplistic version of selfish gene theory and they think it implies cynicism and it implies everybody's just out to have as much sex as they can. But taking a step back and looking how natural selection shapes our capacities for morality and loving relationships, I think is the antidote that can make all of this grow in a healthy way.